0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. concerned about that. Because some of you would be like, well, wow, we'll be in this book for 15 years. Um, That is a possibility. However, uh, I'm only getting through the first three chapters tonight. Uh, So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Now, I don't know about you, but I am super stoked about Food Truck Thursday. Man, those street dogs give me such indigestion. (laughs) But I love them and I eat them every single time. Now, how many of you actually come to Food Truck Thursday? Like you've been at Food Truck? Okay, perfect. So most of you. Um, it's just an easy way for you to bring your family. It's a very inexpensive dinner. Um, really, we just are covering the cost uh, so that um, we can enjoy some good fellowship together. And that's going to stretch all the way through to, into September, to Labor Day, um, or until it starts getting cold again. And so um, we are looking forward to that. And I've got one question What is a foyer? Does, what is a foyer? Is that like a hooray? like? I, and I thought that was a, a lobby. When I was growing up, it was called a narthex, whatever that is. And I call it a foyer. But is a foyer the wrong word? You can say foyer. But it's spelled, that's like saying tarjay as far as I'm concerned. Oh, Okay. All right. So a foyer is the the very wonderful way, French way, to say the lobby. So I'd love to meet you out in the foyer. And I don't shop at Target anymore. But um, uh, I I can't believe I just said that. Um, Anyway, all right, Hebrews chapter 30. I'm going to be a Bible teacher. How about that? Let's go straight to the Word of God. Um, Let's pray to prepare our hearts. Father, it does seem that our world has turned upside down where wrong is right and right is wrong. It does seem like truth is relative. It seems like it just depends on what people feel or think. In fact, I feel like we are living in the book of Judges. People are just living any way that they want, no matter how they feel. And in this day, your spirit speaks this word. For it wasn't just a truth for the first century. Because you are truth. Absolute truth. And it seems, Lord, that there are many who are walking away. And I trust your word. That you're true. That if they truly have a relationship with you, you always leave the 99 to go get the one. But John says there are those who left because they were never apart. And Lord, it's to those that we ask that you would open the door of salvation. And I pray that as we dig into the book of Hebrews, that you would give us insight that we might know and have an answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 13, I'm going to begin there in verse 22. We're going to basically take a look at the last portion of this letter in order to begin. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I've written to you in few words. (laughs) I wonder what a lot of words would have been after 13 chapters. Know that our brother Timothy, so he has a relationship with Timothy, has been set free, so we also know that he was in prison, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, those from Italy greet you, so we also know it's been written from Italy. Grace be with you all, amen. Take a look again at verse 22, maybe you'll circle the word, I appeal. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Now, that word should sound really familiar to us because that is the root word of the same word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And what the author wants us to know is that he's appealing. He's coming alongside of them because he wants to help them in the midst of their first century world. That's what the author wants to do. Now, speaking of the author... We don't know, and I'm not going to argue with you as to who you think it is, because it's Barnabas. (laughs) There are three contenders, maybe Paul, maybe Barnabas, or maybe even Apollos. Theologians tend to land on one of those three. A sanctified guess on my part is that it was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that's what his name means. Of course he would write an encouraging letter. That's what the son of encouragement does. And we see in this particular word to the Hebrews that this is an encouraging letter. That's what it was meant to be. Now, the reason why I don't think it's Paul, it's not written in Pauline style, in fact. Around 200 AD, when Tertullian, one of our early church fathers, was writing his commentary, he said, basically matter of fact, that Barnabas was the one that wrote this book. Now, Barnabas was a Levite. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 36, he came to Christ after the resurrection, and he was a Levite. And it seems that he's very familiar, very comfortable with Levitical ways, Barnabas was also living in Italy. So, to extend a greeting from Italy, well, that would also qualify Barnabas. And the reason why I say it doesn't seem to be Paul is because Paul would say something like, I command you, not I appeal. He would say something like, I beseech you. He was much more directive in his communication style. And so, I don't want to argue over who it was, but as far as I'm concerned, I'll meet you out in the foyer. It was Barnabas. And you can call him Barnabas if you would so choose. But the author, he wants to come alongside this group for a really good reason. Take a look. I appeal to you, brethren. They're brethren. They're Christians. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to them and he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, this is really important as we dig into this because there are five very strong exhortations in the book of Hebrews, and it's important for us to begin with the foundation. He is writing to people that are Christians. They are followers of Jesus. But they were undergoing many trials for their faith. They were undergoing many trials for their faith. In fact, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Just go to the left a little bit just go to the left a little bit, and we're going to kind of let our fingers do in the walking in the last few chapters of this book. But Hebrews chapter 10, if you look at verse 36, he says to him, For you have need of endurance. The reason being, they're going through trials. So that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In other words, don't turn away. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Let me tell you something about Christians. We don't quit. We don't quit. We are not quitters. Christians do not draw back. We do not retreat. We take a, we take a what is the Timex commercial? We take a licking and keep on ticking. Okay, now, for those of you that were born in the 1990s, God bless you. You have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Very good. Now, here's what's going on. It is a watch. It was a watch commercial. But Christians don't quit. And here they are undergoing many trials And some of them are walking away from the faith. See, the first century, they worshipped many gods. In fact, any time the Romans conquered someone, they just took the god into their Roman, uh, uh, many multi-theistic gods and just made them one of theirs. See, they had looked at history, and religion had caused a lot of strife. And so they wanted to eliminate strife in the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. So they allowed every and any god so that there wouldn't disrupt the peace. In fact, you could have any god you wanted. You could have the god of this and the god of that. No matter how you felt, no matter what you wanted to do, you could go and you could worship that god. And if you wanted a little fling for the night, oh, you could go worship Venus because that would be considered worship. They came up with a god for everything. So what the Romans did was, so there wouldn't be any contention, they just accepted and embraced every god. And then the Augustan cult evolved. And the Augustan cult, basically all you had to do as a Roman citizen was go into the temple of Augustus, who was called the Son of God. Okay, small g. He was called the Son of God because he was the foster son of Julius Caesar, who they gave the Roman Empire credit to. So he was called the Son of God, Augustus. That's what he was called. And all you had to do once a year was go into the temple of Augustus and just simply worship Augustus for a little bit, and then you could go back to work. And you would receive a little ticket that said, okay, you have qualified, you've paid your taxes to Augustus. The Christians had a problem with that. You know one real famous one. He's in the book of Revelation, Antipas. Remember? Jesus commended him because he was willing to die for his faith because he would not worship Augustus. He wouldn't do it. So they're going through a rough time. Timothy had just gotten out of jail. and Take a look, if you would, go back with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Now take a look at verse 3. He says this in verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them. Some of the church were in jail. So he writes this letter to encourage them. And if you'll go back with me to Hebrews 13 verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, bear. Now this word, it means to hold up under, to hold back from falling. I want you to bear with, I want you to hold up. See, people were leaving. Flip a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 10. Take a look if you would. Hebrews chapter 10. I need you to see what was happening because of this great persecution that was going on. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Some people are leaving the church but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. They were facing the very fact that people were leaving the church, but that was not the only thing that he was concerned about. Flip over back to Hebrews chapter 13. You'll see it there in verse 9. Hebrews chapter 13 in verse 9. Don't be carried away about with various and strange doctrines. For it's good that the heart be established by grace. You see, the writer of Hebrews is very concerned that they are following a false faith. We see this happening in the 21st century. It's what makes this book so relevant for us to study today. Because people who grew up in the faith, people who grew up in the church, are no longer bearing, they're no longer holding up the words of Scripture. And they're just coming up with anything they can to accommodate the lifestyle that they want to live. It's called deconstructionism. They are deconstructing their faith. They want salvation, they want to go to heaven, but they want to go their way. They don't want any of the cost of picking up your cross. And though they believe in the cross of Christ, oh, I believe in God, but I don't want a cross for myself, as one writer put it forth. Deconstructionism, let me explain, its foundation is in humanism. And humanism basically places the emphasis on man's superiority. So just imagine man's superior. And with that foundation, anything is subject to man's interpretation. In fact, according to a deconstructionist, the only truth that exists is what I believe to be in my culture and context. In other words... What I want truth to be in my culture, in my context, is what truth is. So the Bible, well, the Bible is scrutinized to be the truth of those who wrote it in their culture, and in their context, but it's not absolute truth for all times, because we live in a different culture, and we live in a different context, and the truth that I want to receive is up to me, and how I feel about it. See, it preaches that truth is relative. It's relative to culture. It's relative to context. Truth is what man thinks about it and how man wants to interpret it. It makes man superior and God's word inferior. Someone who wants to deconstruct their faith, they'll take the truth of Scripture, interpret the truth of Scripture subjectively to make it relative, to make it fit into the culture. It's the old ploy of the enemy when he showed up in the Garden of Eden and said, did God really say? It's the same ploy. It just has a different name. You see, there is no issue for a boy to be a girl because it's what I think. It's how I feel. It's not what God created me to be, male and female. The truth is, The truth of the word is absolute. It should change culture. But what deconstruction does, it says, no, it's the way that I feel about that truth and how it accommodates the lifestyle that I want to live. Many Christians are facing the struggle today. Many Christians are facing it within their own families today. Many Christians are facing this with their children today. Because they are getting preached a doctrine that truth is relative. It's whatever you want it to be. They don't hold up to the pressure of the world. They can't answer the questions that the world is asking. And they usually have a bitter pill about the church. And if God is so loving then why won't he love and they just label any sin, sinner or sinner that they want? Well, he does love the sinner, but he hates sin. And because he hates sin, he sent his son to die on the cross so that we could have a relationship with him. But the problem is, they see that our country is no longer even a Christian nation. And so they wonder themselves, since truth is relative and we're no longer a Christian nation, then maybe the truth of the Bible is not true. When I was growing up, Sunday was sacred. Walgreens was closed. Everything was closed. I'm only 52. (laughs) Amory, don't laugh. I'm only 52 years old. And in my generation, Sunday was sacred. Now, people Christians are asking the question, why won't Chick-fil-A open? Don't they realize how much money they're losing? Truth is relative, but not to Chick-fil-A. You see, I'm not saying that questions are wrong. Questions should be a part of our faith. And the church should be the place that people find the answer. Because if we don't give them the answer, they're going to go to man. And what the book of Hebrews is going to let us know, man's not going to give them the right answer. What the book of Hebrews is going to let us know, Jesus is greater than man. Why would you listen to the creation instead of listen to the creator? And what Hebrews shows the church is, we can answer the questions to bring people back to faith. That's the book of Hebrews. You see, this is a word of exhortation. Take a look again, Hebrews chapter 13 and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. Now, this is the, another word that's very similar to the root word paraclete, which is Holy Spirit. It's the word paraclesis. It means to comfort. It means to help. It means to console. It means to encourage. Let me tell you something about these Christians. Their world was being rocked. Go with me to Hebrews 12. Just go back another page. Hebrews chapter 12. They needed to be consoled. They needed to be encouraged because they were living in a godless, excuse me, a Christless world. Doesn't it sound like the United States of America today? You bring up Christianity, you get laughed at. You talk about the Ten Commandments and it's like, are you kidding me? You even discuss a Christian principle, and you can get fired from your job. And in Hebrews chapter 12, they're facing the same thing. Take a look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, But now he's promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but I'll also shake, I added that, the heavens. Now, this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Here's his point. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Gang, their world is being rocked. Their world had turned upside down. Their world had gone nuts around them. They were shooting people in the schools in Hebrews. You have to understand there were violence on the earth. You have to understand they were putting Christians in gladiators' arena. You've got to understand Timothy had just gotten out of jail because he spoke the truth like the Canadian pastor that's been in jail for uh, the longest of time. You've got to understand that Christianity was not accepted in their culture in the same way Christianity is no longer accepted in ours. He writes them and he says to them, I want you to be firmly established. I want you to be planted. I want you to be unshakable. Now let me tell you something that Jesus said. Put it on a plaque. It's John 16, 33. Look at what Jesus, this is a Jesus word. Memorize it, put it on a plaque, and put it, pin it on a Thomas Kincaid photo, okay? Take a look. These things I've spoken to you, I've given you the word, and here's the reason. That in me, in me, you may have peace. Now, here's the promise. In the world, God's will, you will, there's God's will, you will have tribulation. Someone say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Really? You mean it? Okay. In this world, you will have tribulation. You know what my mother says? If you aren't being persecuted, you're no one for the enemy to worry about. That just means you're a Christian sitting on the sideline. And the devil says, don't worry about that person. <laughs> Leave them sitting in the pew because they ain't a problem for us. He says, go back to John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. There's an inexpressible joy because of Christ. I have overcome the world. Now let the church say, amen. amen. God has given us a promise. There's going to be tribulation. And people are going to not understand what it means to follow Jesus. That's why I read on Fox News that at Williams College, their Christian monument was defamed with Satanist verses written all over it. Just this week. Christian churches are being vandalized. Christians and Christian schools are being targeted from Columbine to Covenant in Nashville. And if you say anything about what happened in covenant, you better consider what you say because it was a Christian school and it was a transgender person. You have to understand what's happening in our world. Christian teachers are being silenced, reprimanded, even losing their jobs for their Christian perspective. Christian principles are being violently opposed from prayer to practices. Asked the man that was arrested for simply silently praying in front of Planned Parenthood just a few weeks ago. No longer even tolerated. And so this book was written to encourage us, hold on, I know it's going to be rough. I know it's not easy. Keep your mind on where you're going. Get your mind off of where you're at. Because Jesus is better than anything that you might go through. Jesus is better than anything this world may offer. He's better. And the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. In fact, this word better, it is written 13 times in 12 chapters. In fact, I could even say the word better is one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. You see, this group, they were being tempted to walk away. And he wants them to know that if they walk away towards anything, walk towards Jesus. He's the best thing that you can go towards. And I know it's rough, and I know what you're experiencing, and I know the world around you has rejected Christianity, has rejected Jesus Christ, but you hold on, and you march towards the Lord. That's what he's saying, and here's why. Because another theme of this book is that Jesus is eternal. Take a look at the screen. It's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. The author says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. During the war in Liberia, I met a man, skin and bones. He had run from the rebels. He had lost his job. In fact, let me say, the word that describes war is loss. You lose your friends, you lose your family, you lose your life, you lose your job, you lose your finances, you lose your house, you lose your food. Loss describes war. And when I saw him, it was the first human being he had seen. And I'm a white person, Okay, so he thought I was Casper the Ghost. He'd never seen a white person before. So he's like, dude, what happened to you? Like, what, the, the war majorly affected you, right? But when I saw him, he was skin and bones. I'm like, how long have you been out in the jungle? And he goes, I don't even know it's been so long. He goes, I've lost everything. And I don't even remember the last time I ate. And I said... How come you didn't die? And I'll never forget what this man told me. He said, I have learned something. That as long as I have Jesus and I am spiritually fed, I will never go physically hungry. I'm like a 24-year-old kid listening to a man who has lived in the jungle without food for God knows how many days. And he made the decision, I will hold on to my faith. No matter what is around me, I will hold on to my faith because it's the only eternal thing. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, they may take everything from you, but the salvation you have is eternal. They can't take your salvation away. And Corey Timboon's sister was in the Nazi concentration camp. She was dying of pneumonia. And she said, God is so good. And the prisoner looked at her and said to her, Corey, I mean, Betsy, look at you. You are dying. You're not even Jewish like me. You rescued Jews. And now here you are dying in a Nazi concentration camp. How can you say that God is good? Betsy looked at hers, written by Corey, and said to this woman, you look around you, and you ask me that question. But I say, greater is he that is within me, and I look within me, and I say, God is good. God is good. So with this background, now let's dig in. Now I need to warn you about the book of Hebrews. Prepare yourself. Because as we study Hebrews, it's like studying Job. Did you hear me? Because what the Lord is going to do to our church is prove his word to be true in our lives. He is preparing us for an age. And I believe that Calvary Chapel South Bay needs to hold on that we have decided to go to war against the enemy. And no matter what comes Calvary Chapel South Bay's way, this church will hold on to the truth of the word. Amen? Are you ready? No one's walked out, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. When I was on the mission field, I heard of a story of a group of gunmen that walked into a church in a country where Christianity was illegal. They had masks on and machine guns, and they said, if you want to leave, you can leave and deny Christ. If you stay, you choose to die. Two-thirds of the church got up and left. When the last person walked out, they locked the doors of the church They took their masks off and put their guns down. And they said, now, let the real church worship the living God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Just think for a moment what these Christians were living with. Wondering daily, not if they were coming for your family, When they were. And they were leaving the faith. They were walking away. Isn't Jesus coming? He promised that he would. Can we trust him? Can we trust him at his word with everything that we're walking through? I've lost my job. My family has rejected me. I mean, they are saying, why are you sticking with this Christ thing? Come back to Judaism. Now in Hebrews chapter 1, He deals with the very first question. Take a look, if you would, verse 1. God, I love the way, any book that begins with the name of God has got to be a good book. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now, I told you you're only getting through the first three verses, so stick with me with verse 1. Isn't it wonderful that God speaks? Isn't it wonderful? What a powerful truth of our faith that our God talks to us. I have been to India and it amazes me the amount of idols. I have been to Thailand and Buddha is everywhere. And no matter what you say to Buddha, This is all you get. You got to feed him, but he don't eat. You got to burn the candle. He don't care. This is all you get. And he's everywhere. You can talk to him, but he don't talk back. And no matter how many gods are in India or in Hinduism, none of them speak. God speaks. And can I tell you about something about when God speaks? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, he speaks so well. Look at this. For the word of God is living. Do you know when you're reading your Bible, you're actually having a conversation? You're not reading a book. You're having a conversation. You're getting a text message straight from heaven's throne to your heart. Bling! Read it because it's good for you. Listen, it's living and it's powerful. It's powerful. The Word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the tents of the heart. There's a guy in our church on Sunday. He will meet me out in the foyer. He'll meet me out there, and he will say to me, You got me today. You got me again. I felt it. You got me. And I will say to him, I didn't get you. The word of God took its sword and just went (laughs) like this. Well, he got me. He got me again. It's just the word of God. It's what the word of God does. Because the word of God is not a book. It's him speaking to you. That's what he does. He speaks and he guides us and he directs us into all truth. Let me tell you why. He's the God of truth. Turn with me to John chapter 8. I ask you to keep your finger there. John chapter 8. We're going to pick it up there in verse 31. Listen to what Jesus said. This is Jesus talking, living and active. Jesus uh, Jesus said, John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Who today would like to sign up to be a slave? A slave to cigarettes, a slave to alcohol, a slave to drugs. Who would like to be a slave to a girlfriend, a slave to a boyfriend? How many of you would like to be a slave to a relationship? The very word makes us mad. And it should. But what Jesus offers is freedom, unshackled. Now, do you want to be in bondage? Go the way of the world. If you want to walk in freedom, then go the way of the word. But Jesus, just a little bit further, would you go to John chapter 8, verse 43? He says this, why don't you understand my speech? Why can't you pick up what I'm saying? Why is the word not piercing you? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. Ouch. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He's a murderer from the beginning, so he's calling him out. I know you want to kill me. And does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. We're living in a world today that rejects truth Because they don't believe in Jesus. We're living in a world today that rejects truth because they reject what Jesus has to say and Jesus is the truth. Now, just because they reject it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means they reject it. It doesn't have any bearing on the truth of the word of God. You might feel it does. You might be hurt by what they say. But I need to let you know something. God does not need you to defend him. He doesn't need you to make him look better. He doesn't need you to cover coat his word. He just needs you to speak it and to speak it with confidence because God's not embarrassed of what he's had to say. He's not embarrassed at all. He is the truth, and the truth sets people free. Now, going back to Hebrews chapter 1, if you would, take a look. Hebrews chapter 1, once again, God, who at various times and various ways spoke to the fathers, the Bible says, by the prophets. Now, it appears by saying the fathers that he's speaking to a group of Jews because he's referring to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke to the fathers. He spoke to the patriarchs. He spoke to our common ground. So it seems to be in this book, and that's why it's called the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. It seems that he's speaking to Jews, Jewish Christians. But these Christians, these Christians are second generation believers. Just flip over a page to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, take a look. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us? This is another reason why I don't believe it was Paul. Paul was a first generation uh, Christian, he heard the gospel from Jesus, he didn't hear it from the apostles. So he says, confirmed to us, including himself, by those who heard him. These are second generation believers. These are those that were still waiting for the return of Christ, wondering why he's not come, and they came to Christ through those that saw Jesus. That's us, gang. We believe because the apostles told us. We believe by the witness of Peter, James, and John. We believe that's why this book is so appropriate for us. Let me tell you what these Jewish Christians were facing. They were facing Jewish family. They were facing Jewish family who hadn't converted. They were facing a family that says, What are you doing going after this new religion, over this new sect? They were facing a family of rejection who have followed Judaism for thousands of years, and they're wondering, why would you leave what the prophets have said? Why are you going with this new prophet, Jesus, when he hasn't even returned yet like he said that he would? Is he someone that you can trust? Is he someone that you are willing to lose your family for? Think of what they're facing. They were facing a culture that detested Christians. Sound familiar? familiar? They were facing a culture that detested Christians. They were even facing their own struggle. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Peter and John were going to the temple at the ninth hour to pray? They didn't have to go to the temple anymore. But they were following the tradition of the Jews. They hadn't walked out of the temple yet. They were still going to the temple. They didn't have to go to the temple anymore. They didn't have to make sacrifice anymore. But Peter's whole struggle was whether or not you should be Jewish still, or whether or not you're able not to be Jewish. He was still celebrating the new moons, and Paul had to, to his face, tell him that he was wrong, and what he was asking the Gentile believers to do, and to become Jewish in order to become Christian. If you do that, then it's a work not of grace, but it's simply a work to get saved. And so he's saying, listen, I know that you're facing the struggle and that you're wanting to go back to your traditions. They're struggling. And he says, listen, God spoke through the prophets. And they're looking at the prophets, and they're like, yeah, God did speak. And everything the prophet says, they came to pass. So maybe the prophet's word could be trusted, because here we are waiting for Jesus, and he's not come back yet. We're going through all these trials. Is this really worth it when, I mean, what Isaiah said came to pass? What Jeremiah said came to pass? I mean, why would we leave Judaism if Judaism has proven to be true, and we're still waiting for Jesus, and he hasn't shown up? They're facing a trial, and now they're wondering if Jesus can keep his promises the way the prophets kept their promises. They had forgotten their history. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus calls them out on this. Matthew chapter 23. Take a look at verse 29. Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, whenever Jesus says, woe, you better go, woe. Woe. You don't have to tonight, but you're more than welcome to, okay? (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Verse 29, now verse 30. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witness against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. Can you imagine if I began a message like this? I mean, Jesus great speaker serpents brood of vipers how can you escape the condemnation of hell therefore indeed i send you prophets wise men and scribes some of them you will kill he sanctions martyrdom some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So the Christians are looking about the time that the book of Hebrews is written. Well, they crucified Peter and they crucified him upside down. They've beheaded Paul. Paul, by the time this letter is written, has passed away. About 69 AD. I mean, they've exiled John, they boiled him in oil. Jesus hasn't come back yet. He's letting all of his people get martyred. He's letting all of his people get killed off. I mean, what's going on here? And they're struggling. They're struggling in their faith, and they're wondering: should we just go back to Judaism? I mean, everything that the prophet said was true. And what Jesus is saying is. You didn't believe the prophets when they were here. You murdered them. You murdered Abel, and you murdered Zechariah, son of Berechiah. And now you build these huge monuments to Zechariah because now you realize that his word was true. And you're doing the same thing with Jesus because what he said is true. And now you're turning away from it because it hasn't come to pass yet. And that's what we have to be careful of. Now, he's not saying that the prophets are not great. The prophets were great. I mean, come on, think about it for just a moment. Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, he brought fire down from heaven. That's pretty cool. Elisha, he resurrected the Shunammite's uh, son, the Shunammite woman's son. That's pretty incredible. Isaiah prayed for Hezekiah. Hezekiah. And he was healed and given another 15 years of life. Jeremiah prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and no one believed him. And in 60 years of ministry, we don't know that Jeremiah had one convert. We don't know. No one believed him that Jerusalem was going to be taken. But Jerusalem was taken. And Jeremiah was right. What about Daniel? Daniel was an incredible prophet. He survived the lion's den simply because he chose to pray three times a day. Daniel gave the history of the world that they are now living in, the Roman Empire, that Daniel prophesied out of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What about the greatest of prophets? John the Baptist. He was a great guy. Jesus even said there's no one born greater among women because he got to announce Jesus You see, the truth of the prophets is that they were great. But the truth of the prophets is they were all pointing to Jesus because Jesus is greater, because Jesus is better. But these guys, they were putting Jesus on the same level. Let me tell you what they were saying. He's just a man like the other prophets. I need you to hear that. Because it's a doctrine in the world today. The prophets are great. Is Jesus greater? I mean, what the prophets said came to pass, but Jesus hasn't returned yet. So is what Jesus said going to come to pass? Or is he just another good prophet, another great prophet? Peter believed it. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? And they're up there, and Moses and Elijah showed up. And Peter goes, this is so cool. We need to make three tents one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Even God in heaven couldn't take it anymore. God in heaven is like, You, Peter, you don't get it. The Bible says that God in heaven interrupted Peter in the middle of what he was saying. In other words, we don't know all else what he was about to say. And he said, Listen to him, listen to Jesus. Peter was putting Jesus on the same level as Elijah in the same way that the group in Hebrews is doing, is doing in Hebrews chapter 1. Putting him on the same level. And what, Jesus, what the book of Hebrews is getting across is the prophets are great, but Jesus is better. Jesus is better. You see, those that want to deconstruct faith, they're doing the same thing. Jesus was a great man. I mean, he was like a prophet, but he definitely wasn't God. He's a great man. I mean, he did a lot of great things. He did a lot of kind things. He even said a lot of great things, like, you know, turn the other cheek. I mean, the golden rule, do unto others. He was a great man. I mean, he was so kind that he offered his lunch and everybody saw that he was willing to give his five loaves and two fish. So they took out of their lunch bag all the fish and the loaves they had. And Jesus set a great example. It wasn't a miracle. They saw Jesus give and they decided to give. That's how they fed the five thousands. That's what's out there. Jesus didn't do a miracle. Miracles were added. It's like Greek mythology. They wanted to make Jesus look better, so they just started saying that after so many years that he did all these miracles when it really was he was a kind guy and all he did was give of his lunch. He didn't give of his lunch, he gave of a little boy's lunch. So, what did he do? Steal the lunch and then give with the little boy's lunch? I mean, think of what they're trying to communicate. I mean, he didn't really resurrect Jairus' daughter. And we don't even know, because he went in the room by himself with a few other people. Maybe they concocted a plan, and he was a really great physician, and he gave some kind of potion, and all of a sudden, she wasn't really dead. She was just in a coma, and she comes back to life. Sounds preposterous if you're a believer, but it's what's out there today. Jesus was just a great man. But that's not the truth of Scripture. Take a look, if you would, go back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I know you want to read. We're only going to verse 3. And here's what the writer does. The prophets are great, but Jesus is greater than the prophets because he's more than a man. He's the God-man. And in these two verses... The writer of Hebrews gives us seven theological principles that we're going to walk through real quickly. Take a look at the first one. He has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The Father declared him to be the Son. This is my my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There in the baptism, everyone heard it. The Father spoke. This is my Son and Jesus declared himself to be the son. In Mark chapter 14, he says this, but he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him saying, "Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed?" Jesus said, "I am." Those were the same two words that God the Father used when he was speaking to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Trust me, the high priest knew exactly what Jesus was communicating. But if you're struggling with that belief, the Spirit declares him to be the Son. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And the Bible says in Romans 1, 4, And he declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit. So because of the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The very fact that Jesus rose from the grave on his own by the power of the Spirit is the sheer proof that he is the Son of God. Now, did you hear that? He's not man. He's... The God-man. Now, i got a question for you. Why would you choose what man has to say over what God has to say? You know what's amazing to me? It's amazing to me how everyone is an expert when it comes to the subject of God. Just go to a college campus, and they got a lot to say about God. Go to people with degrees. they got a lot to say with, about God. You've got the creation trying to tell you something about the Creator. Just ask Darwin. Just ask Freud. Just ask Nietzsche, who said that God is dead. None of them, Darwin, nor Nietzsche, nor Freud, can claim this credential, that they're the son of God. Who are they? What is a man able to say, and neither one of them, Darwin, nor Nietzsche, nor Freud, rose from the dead? No, not one of them rose from the dead. Not one of them proved that what they had to say was better than what Jesus has said. They may contradict what Jesus has said. They may contradict what God has said in his word, but none of them can prove to me that I would believe them because none of them have proven to be the son of God. Jesus has that credential. But not only that, he's the heir of all things because he is the son. He is, number two, the heir of all things. And Let me explain what this means. In Jesus is all that the Father is and all that the Father has. Did you hear that? He's the heir. He gets everything that God the Father is. He's God. Take a look at John chapter 10. You can write it down in your notes. John 10 verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Jesus says he's greater. So if the Father is greater, Jesus is greater. And no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand I and my Father are one. I am God. Do you remember when Philip goes, Can you show us the Father? And Jesus goes, <laughs> <laughs> Now I did this, this is not in the Word, okay? But if I was Jesus, I, if I was Jewish and Jesus, oh, very. I mean, I just can't imagine. How long have I been with you, Philip, and yet you ask, Where's show me the Father? Don't you know that I and the Father are one? And if God is greater, Jesus is greater. Now i got a question for you. Why would you listen to anyone else other than the one who's God at all? Why would you listen to anyone else other than the one who says, I and the Father are one? To me? It would be like listening to the detail of brain surgery, going to a convention on brain surgery, and the guy who is giving you the information knows nothing more than auto mechanics. It would be like going to an auto mechanic uh, convention, and the guy on stage knows nothing but brain surgery, but they're trying to tell you how to rip off a catalytic converter, like happened in our parking lot just a couple weeks ago. And man, it was quick, it's all on video. They literally took it out within a minute. (laughs) They were gone. We just watched them on the video. It was like, oh, yep, they stole it. It wasn't during church. It was during uh, office hours for those of you that are now concerned about your catalytic converters. Why would I go to an auto mechanic to learn about brain surgery? Why would I go to anyone else but God to know about life? He's the creator of life. The Bible says that also, verse number three, he made the worlds. So let me tell you what that means. He made the worlds. On day one, when God said, let there be light, that's Jesus speaking. It was Jesus. Let there be light. And not only did he make it, he holds it together. Now, what man do you know or woman that can hold the world together? I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how strong you are. Um, I had recently went with a staff member, Amory, um, to move some furniture. And we had to go down like these, probably, was it Amory, 40 flights of steps? Yeah. We so said we had to go down these 40 flights of steps. Now, Amory is a little bit stronger than me. A little. <laughs> it's, it is like a, like a nine-foot piece of wardrobe, okay? We are going down the steps. He's holding the whole thing. I just have my hand on it. Are you good? Are you good? Are you still good? Let me tell you something. I don't care how strong he is. He can't hold the worlds together. Do you know right now if the world stopped spinning, we would all hit that wall at 1,000 miles per hour? If God just moved his hand for just a moment and just stopped gravity, stopped the spin of the earth, I mean, we would all hit that wall at 1,000 miles per hour. Stop and think about what it means to hold the world together. I don't care how smart you are. No man has created something from nothing like God. So how can the creation tell the creator anything? You know, when I was growing up, Pluto was a planet. Didn't know if you knew that. Pluto was a planet, and I learned that in school. I learned in elementary school. I learned it in middle school, and I even made the little sun with all the little styrofoam balls, and Pluto was a planet. I just learned from Simeon, Zach's son, Pluto has now been discovered to be a moon. Do you think that surprised God? And as we were teaching our kids, Pluto's a planet, God's going, they are so dumb. Because we know. We know, and now Pluto is a moon. I wonder what else they're communicating as truth, like evolution, when God says, I created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, I rested. I rested. The Bible says there was an evening and a morning, 24-hour days. There wasn't a million years in between. There was an evening and a morning. It describes a day. What else is wrong? Let me tell you something. He knows. Just ask him. He's the creator. Ask him. He says, seek me. You'll find me. And when you seek And when you ask, when you knock, I'll open up. It's just who our God is. We've got to get those that are deconstructing their faith to start asking God the questions instead of asking man the question he'll answer. Just get them seeking. And whenever I talk to someone who has walked away from the faith, I leave and I say this, just ask God. All I want you to do tonight before you to go to bed, I want you to say, if you are real, show me. That's all I want you to do. If you're real, show me. That's all I say. And then I walk away because I know God to be true to his word. He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. He says, all you have to do is ask, it'll be answered. And so I always get unbelievers or those that have walked away simply to ask a question. Number four, the Bible says he's the fullness of God. Let me tell you about the prophets. Let me tell you about the prophets. They only got bits and pieces of the whole truth. They only foretold portions, not the whole. That's why we got to piece it together like a puzzle. But can I tell you something about Jesus? He knew the whole and knew we couldn't handle it. Take a look what Jesus says, John 16, 12. you love this. I still have many things to say to you, speaking of the disciples, but you can't bear it. In other words, I know it all, but you can't know it all yet. But the Spirit of God will reveal it to you when you can handle it. God knows it all. He's the fullness of God. The Bible says in Hebrews, he's the express image. In other words, he's everything the Father is. He can't lie. He doesn't change. And what he said in the 21st, excuse me, in the first century is what he means in the 21st century. Truth is absolute. It is not relative. I'm going to prove it to you. Watch. This is powerful. Are you ready? Here we go. Did you see it? Buck 85. Went up, came down. It don't matter. Gravity is true. Try to prove it wrong. Try to say, I'm going to do it right now. Gravity, you are not true. I can believe it. I can hold to it. I can even worship it. But no matter what, when I go to sprout off of the ninth ninth floor of that building, I'm going down. I can believe it. I can even dream about it. I've had dreams where I can fly. When I was a kid, I had wings. And in my dreams, I could fly. But when I got out of bed, I would fall onto the floor. It's the truth of gravity. Number five. He holds up all things by the the word of his power. Prophets are great, but Jesus is greater because his word is powerful. What he's got today, got to say is so powerful that it holds everything together. Now, let me tell you something. The prophets had a powerful word. Do you remember um, Elijah? He called down fire from heaven. That's pretty powerful. Can you imagine being being there that day? Fire, come on down. (laughs) Whoa, that's cool. Elisha, do you remember Elisha? Gehazi lied. And so Elisha says, Let the leprosy of Naaman cling to you. And all of a sudden, the Bible says that Gehazi had the leprosy of Naaman. But none of the prophets, no matter how powerful their words was, none of the prophets, nor any man, can speak to anything and what make whatever they want come to pass. Only Jesus can. He can speak to water and make it a sidewalk. That's what Jesus can do. He can speak to demons and they can flee. He can speak to any sickness and heal it. He can speak to any lameness and heal it. He can speak to any blindness and heal it. He can heal anything. Just ask the centurion. When the centurion came in Matthew chapter 8, do you know what he said? He goes, listen, my servant is sick and I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But if you just send the word, I know they can be healed. Because God's word is powerful. When Jesus says something and he's speaking to the Hebrews, he upholds it. When Jesus says he's coming back, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how long it takes from your perspective, he is coming back. His word will come to pass. Number six. By himself, verse three, purged our sins. No man on this earth can claim sinlessness. No man, but Jesus can. No man can claim absolute pure motives, absolute pure intentions, or an absolute pure heart, but Jesus can. Why would you trust anyone else that contradicts what Jesus has to say because their motives are impure, their intentions are impure, their heart is impure. Let me tell you what Jesus said about man. John chapter 2. Take a look. Jesus didn't commit himself to the crowd because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man. He didn't need anyone to tell him what's inside of guys, inside of people, for he knew what was in man. Basically what John is saying, why would you trust whatever any man had to say as compared to what Jesus says. Man has impure motives, impure intents, impure hearts. But Jesus, he purged our sins because he's the only sinless one. Finally, number seven, and I love this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me show you something, another powerful illustration. It's been a long day. You know you're getting old when your body starts talking to you when you sit down and when you wake up, right? (laughs) Nothing like sitting down after a long day. When you sit down, you rest. Jesus isn't standing. You know why he's not standing? His work is done. And what he's saying to him is this Why would you go back to the prophets? Their work isn't done. In fact, the high priest, every year he had to go in and atone for the sins. Every year he had to go back into the Holy of Holies. Every year he had to go back in, sprinkle the blood, walk in, and it was no place for him to sit because he couldn't rest while he was in there. He's terrified for his life. In fact, they put a rope around him in case they heard the little jingle, jingle, stop jingling, they pulled him out. Okay? No more jingle bells? They're bringing him out. There's no rest for the priest. He lived in fear. It's where most of the world lives because they're trying to figure out God. They can't rest. They can't rest because they are God. But if they would choose to surrender, they would realize the rest that Jesus offers. That's what you offer That's what you can give the world, the rest of God. Now, here's what the prophet is saying. Here's what Hebrews is all about. The prophets were great. There's nothing wrong with the prophets. But Jesus is greater. Jesus was more than a man. So don't say he was just a great guy. Don't say he was just a great man who did some great things. No, no, no. Don't. That's not who he is. He's the God-man. He's the Son of God, heir of all things. So be careful to put the words of any man on the same level as the words of Christ. And if the words of a man contradict the words of Christ, default the words of Christ. I laugh when I listen to unbelievers try to explain God away. It just makes me laugh. In fact, God laughs. The Bible says God laughs as enemies. So I laugh too. And when I see people on CNN debating about whether or not God is real, I just laugh. Because you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a story that I heard in Africa. The antelope really believed he was a lion. He really believed it. And he walked around the jungle like a lion. He even tried a little roar. That's how they sound. Imagine. And he walked around believing I am a lion. Finally, he saw the lion one day. And believing, he looked at the lion and he said, I am the king of the jungle. And no matter how much he believed it, it only led to his destruction. Just ask the lion. You might believe something that's not true because a man told you. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, default what Jesus told you. Because what he says is true. Man's way will only lead to destruction. Amen? So, Father, we do thank you for your word, and we're so grateful that you are the Son of God. Jesus, thank you. The prophets were great, but they were just men. And you are greater than any man. You are Jesus. You're the son of the living God, heir of all things. You and the Father are one. And so, Lord, I pray with the confidence of that, that your church will march out into this world and trust you no matter what it is that we go through. God, give us the strength. Give us the peace. Give us the patience. Please, give us the courage and the boldness. We pray to win L.A. So, Lord, no matter what man says, we trust you. No matter the doctrine they may preach, we trust your doctrine. No matter the opposition, we trust you. Your church says we believe. Your church says we acclaim you as the Son of God. And I pray in these days, Christianity is no longer popular or part of this nation, that this church would stand and having done all, stand some more. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited about Hebrews. God bless you guys. Why don't you stand with us? We're going to worship. Now, I I know I went six minutes over. But I know you, Thursday night people, you don't care. You would have me teach all night long. (laughs) Some of you are not clapping, and I saw, okay? (laughs) The book of Hebrews, next week, we're going to be dealing with the New Age movement because they were going to angels, the mystical. And he's saying, listen, Jesus is greater than angels, The angels were great. did a lot of great things. But Jesus is still greater. And in our day, people are attracted to the mystical. They, they, They love the mystery of the mystical. And what the Hebrew writer of Hebrews is going to let us know, Jesus is greater. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message.